Thank you so much, Dan and choir and instrumentalists for our beautiful worship today. Turn your Bibles to Malachi chapter 1, Malachi chapter 1, worthy worship. Malachi chapter 1. Worship comes in many forms these days, too many to be honest, and unfortunately Stephanie Pierce in Portland, Oregon decided to create a religion that centers around a rock legend. It's called, quote, the Church of Elvis, close quote. No, no kidding, the Church of Elvis. is in downtown. It's open 24 hours a day. It operates sort of like an ATM machine. It's coin-operated. The church offers a confession, a sermon, a photo opportunity with the king. You drop a quarter in the machine and you choose, was your sin a mere thought or um, an action? The machine is programmed to accept sins in six different categories, dirty laundry, dirty teeth, condescending sneers, money, overeating, or believing that Elvis is dead. For a buck, the Church of Elvis will conduct a wedding ceremony. For one dollar, the Church of Elvis will conduct your wedding ceremony. Now, having paid for a wedding last summer and preparing to pay for another wedding this summer, I'm thinking about transferring my membership to the Church <laughs> of Elvis. The reason that the marriage sacrament is four times as high as the quarter confession is the catering bill. There is a bag of rice that comes with the $1 wedding. It's funny, but it's tragic. Worship centered around a dead, yes, dead rock star. How unfruitful and misguided could worship become? Well, it's not just way out churches. There are mainline congregations doing the same thing. Pastor Kleist of the First Lutheran Church in Stewartsville, New Jersey, has a large sign advertising, and I quote, quote, express worship, express worship. From beginning to end, this worship service lasts 22 minutes guaranteed or your tithe dollar back. Why 22 minutes? Because Pastor Kleist said that Americans' attention span is about 22 minutes. The average sitcom minus the commercials, he came up with 22 minutes. In 22 minutes, you get a little bit of everything. You get a hymn, you get a sermon, a Bible reading, you get a discussion even. 22 minutes. And church attendance is actually up 40% at the First Lutheran Church in Stewartsville, New Jersey. Is a quarter and a machine dedicated to Elvis worship? Is a no-hassle, 22-minute express service worship? How, how about our worship this morning? Is our worship pleasing to God? Karl Barth, German theologian, once said, Christian worship is the most momentous, the most urgent, the most glorious action that can ever take place in a human life. Now you think about that. Christian worship is the most momentous, the most urgent, the most glorious action that can ever take part in a human life. Eugene Peterson said, as a pastor, 
I don't like to be viewed as insignificant. I bristle at the high-energy executive that leaves the place of worship with a comment, now, this is wonderful, Pastor, but now we must all go back to the real world, don't we? Wait a minute, says the pastor. I thought in here we are in the most real world, a world revealed as God's world, a world to be invaded by God's grace, a world that's turning point, the pivot on the crucifixion and the resurrection of the Lamb of God. By the executive's comment, he's not taking his worship very seriously. Worshiping for him is marginal to making money. Prayer is marginal to the bottom line. And Christian salvation is little more to him than brand preference. Malachi says, look at chapter 1 and verse 10. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates that you might not uselessly kindle fire on. My altar, I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. Malachi, God is so repulsed by the worship of his people. He says, I wish one of you, just one of you, would get up and close and lock the door so no one could come in and trample my house. Is worship as Bart described it or as Malachi described it? Is worship pleasing to God or is it repugnant to him? It can be either, can't it? It depends on the worshiper's attitude. In life, worship is absolutely forever. Evangelism will end. Your opportunity to tell someone about the grace of God through the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, that will all come to an end one day. Education will end. There'll be no more studying or reading in eternity. Prophecy will end at some moment. Ministry, mission, social service will end. But worship lasts forever. What you do this morning when you gather and you sing with all that you have to God, when our choir praises him with glory, it is something that lasts for all eternity. We realize that the best and brightest in the eternal realm already know this. In John's apocalypse, he has a vision of four terrifying and magnificent and wise creatures singing day and night and night and day, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And that's all they do forever and ever and ever. And each time we turn a page in Revelation, every time we are startled by another scene of worship, here it is 24 elders, and over here is 10,000 times 10,000 angels, and over here is some martyred saints all saying together, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. God had become repulsed by their worship. Because the way in which they approached worship, they were not giving God their best. Point number one, worship God in reverence. Look at verses 6 through 8. A son honors his father and a servant his master. 
then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect? Says the Lord of hosts, you old priests who despise my name, but you say, how have we despised your name? You have presented defiled food upon my altar. But you say, how have we defiled thee? And I will say to you, the table of the Lord is to be despised. But when you present a blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? When you present the lame or the sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your, to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly? Says the Lord of hosts. A son honors his father. A servant honors his master, God says. But you've not honored me. Why they were not bringing God their best, they were bringing God the leftovers, blind bulls and shabby sheep and limping lambs when Leviticus had already told them in chapter 22 that the animals brought to the sacrifice in the temple were to be the very best from the flock, without defect, without blemish. They were bringing God the leftovers. God says, if you're going to do that, I wish somebody would just lock the gate. If you're not willing to bring me your best, if like a son you're not willing to honor me as a father, as a servant you're not willing to honor me as a master, then shut the gate and stay home. How about us? Do we bring God our best for worship? Or is this morning a tag-on to an already too busy week? Indifference when we come, perhaps boredom, bringing God our leftovers and God is not pleased. God deserves, no, God demands our best in worship. There's some Christians who are downright scrupulous about all the other nine commandments, but the command to remember this day and to keep it different, to set the day aside for God well, they act as if the commandment never existed. Although it was the last day of the week for the Jew, the Sabbath was the center of his week, not the end. For three days he prepared himself for worship, and then he worshiped. And for three days he meditated about that worship and prepared his heart for the next Sabbath, the next day of worship. Sabbath was the goal toward which human history and all the cosmos was moving. The great rest of God. When a Jew ceased from his labor on the Sabbath, a little of eternity invaded his life as eternal rest. He dwelt no longer in the kingdom of necessity, but now he lived in a few hours in the reigning kingdom of God. For this reason, Sabbath was an eschatological act participation in God's future. The Sabbath told the Jew where he was headed. When the early church changed it to not the last, but the first day of the week, Sunday, because of the resurrection of Jesus on this holy day, it was complaining that it was proclaiming that all that Israel had looked for had now been fulfilled, and the crucifixion and the resurrection of the one true sacrificial lamb of God. And now we had a new creation, we had redemption, and we await now as we worship and we sing praises to him, the final consummation through the great return of the Christ. They were headed somewhere when they worshiped. 
Sometimes it seems when we gather for worship, we're headed somewhere too. But not the consummation of the kingdom of God. We're headed toward what we're going to do after church. We're anxious to get worship done and over with. We want it crisp and snappy. Maybe some even doing it on Saturday night so I can have my whole Sunday to myself. We want to get on with the day after we've gotten the worship done. Get on with what? Get on with athletics. Get on with family gatherings. Get on with the weekly TV sports extravaganza. Today is the day that's God to stay. Today is a day of worship. Fred Craddock recalled years ago, they had a student in seminary that for eight years taught in a school in Nashville, Tennessee for children with hearing disorders. Oh, it wasn't that they didn't have ear problems. They heard is they had a disconnect between the words and the meaning of the words, you see. The guy did it for eight years, and after that, he said, I just can't do it anymore. He said, I would go home every day crying after working with those students. He said, one year, right after the Thanksgiving holiday, a little girl came, and I asked her. I got down. Her name was Heather. I got down on my knees. I took her shoulders, and I said, Heather, what did you have? What did you eat for Thanksgiving? And Heather responded, my shoes are red. My shoes are red. Craddock said when his student quit, he didn't have the heart to tell him that he's going to find that disconnect of people who are doing the wrong thing in the wrong place and saying the wrong thing at the wrong time, whether he's teaching children or not. He said, I was in a worship service in Dallas, and the music, oh, it was glorious. And the prayers, they flowed, and the songs, and everything gelled, and the sermon fit the songs. It was the voice of God. And I was standing there just a guest after the benediction. I did not want to move. I was immobilized by the voice and the worship of God. The man in the pew in front of me turned around and said he did not even know me. You think Tom Landry's going to coach another year or not? He said, do you know what that man said to me? He said, my shoes are red. My shoes are red. The disconnect in the midst of majesty. Bring your best to God. Bring your preparation to God. Come in reverence. The psalmist said, oh, come, let us bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is God. Revelation 4, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. The focus of true worship is on God. The key word for worship in the Old Testament and the key worship word for worship in the Greek, Hebrew and Greek, is basically the same meaning of the word. It means to bow down, to take a knee, to come with a reverent heart and say that God is great and God is 
powerful. Are we giving God our best in worship? Henry Ward Beecher, pastor of the Plymouth Church in Brooklyn for many years, was one of the most famous pulpiteers in American history. People came from all over just to hear Henry Ward Beecher preach from the pulpit. One Sunday he was gone and a guest pulpiteer came up to the pulpit and the minute the people figured out that Beecher wasn't going to be there that day, they started headed, heading for the back doors and the guest pastor said, and I quote, May I have your attention? All those who came here this morning to worship Henry Ward Beecher, would you please exit the sanctuary? But all who came to worship God, would you please take your seat? We come for a lot of reasons. Maybe to hear a certain speaker. Maybe to feel an obligation. Maybe to hear our children perform. Maybe for, to make business connections. But we are not here this morning to be entertained. We're not here this morning to stir your emotions. We're not here this morning to indoctrinate you in Baptist theology. Worship is first and foremost to get us to focus our attention on God in complete reverence and take the knee and say, you are worthy, you are glorious, you are holy. Are we bringing God our best when we worship? Look at verse 11. From the rising of the sun to the setting of the same, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense is going to be offered to my name. And a grain offering that is pure for my name will be great among the nations. Every knee will bow, Paul tells us, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. God says in Malachi what Paul says in Philippians, that is to say, there is no tongue, there is no people who will not worship me. Not only reverence, but secondly, results. Notice verse 9. But now will you entreat God's favor? He may be gracious to us with such an offering on your part. Will he receive any of you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? Not only are we to have reverence, but we worship hopeful for results. We honor God and we're reverent to him and our lives are changed. There's a result that comes with our worship, our reverence. What are the results we receive? First of all, pardon, do we not? You remember Isaiah chapter 6 when the prophet is there in the temple and the whole temple is filled with the glory of God and he says, woe is me for I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. You remember, remember the divine creature takes the hot, hot coal, the seraphim, and touches the lips and says, your iniquity is taken away. It's here in this room, the act of worship, we acknowledge who God is and his crucifixion and his resurrection, and we receive our pardon. Secondly, it's power. Worship gives us the opportunity to tap God's power. We, we come in our weakness and we acknowledge and experience his strength. We come in our weariness and we know that he is the one who is steadfast. Thirdly, we receive the result of peace, don't we? We live in an age of anxiety. And your anxiety is about two things, either yesterday or tomorrow. 
And yet when we enter this room, we worship the God who is always the same, the same yesterday, the same today, and the same tomorrow, and our anxiety fades. Billy Graham's wife once said, I have learned that you cannot both worship and worry at the same time. You cannot both worship and worry at the same time. We get peace in this room. We acknowledge that God is on his throne and whatever the chaos is in our lives is overtaking us, that God is still on his throne. He gives us peace, does it not? Years ago, as three gray whales were icebound off of Point Barra, Alaska, they were floating around bloody and battered and they were gasping for breath and holes in the ice. Their only hope was somehow to be transported. There they are. There's one little hole in which to, to breathe, and they're five miles away from open ocean. Some folks said, just, just let them die. Just let them go. Let nature take its course. There were three of them to start with, and the Russians helped us, so we began to break the ice. And every 20 yards, they made a new little hole in the ice going towards the ocean, and the whales were coaxed to move 20 yards at a time from air hole to air hole, from a place to breathe to another place to breathe. The very end, Putu and Siku, they, they named them. They were able, by the aid of those breaking the ice, to breathe, to have freedom. Worship is like that, isn't it? It is a string of breathing holes in our life. And every seven days, we might say, every 20 yards, we're able to come up in this frozen, barren world and breathe in the power and the glory and the majesty of God. Not only peace, but purpose. You can only understand who you are when you understand who God is. You can only understand who you are when you understand who God is. Not only reverence and not only results, but finally response. Response. We come in reverence, we receive results, and we are as worshipers to give a response. There's a young girl in Africa who didn't have any money, and she'd just been saved and baptized to the glory of God, and the pastor was preaching about giving God your best, and she didn't have a dime to her name, and when the offering plate was passed, she set it in the aisle, and she stood in the plate with her feet. She was giving God her everything. She was giving God her best. When we worship, we are a to response at his majesty and his glory. Peter says we are to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. And Paul says in Romans 12, our bodies are living sacrifices, true worship that we offer. If you've ever been to, never been to church when you felt compelled to give sacrificially to the work of God, you have not worshiped. If you go to church and try to palm off to God the leftovers of your life, you have not worshipped. If you have not felt compelled to join Isaiah in chapter 6 in the midst of the presence and the glory of God, here I am, God. Use me 
to do this, then you have not worshipped. We come with reverence. We receive results. And then we, then we have to respond. Worship is the center of who we are as a people of God. It is not an elective activity. It is not something we receive or set aside. It is the center of our being, and it ought to be that breathing place for us in the middle of a chaotic, broken, lost, and dying world. Say, in this room, in this place, for this hour, I fully acknowledge that God is on his throne. And I will sing to him to the top of my lungs with all that I am to say, you are worthy my worship. I will see him as my creator. I will see him as my sustainer. I will see him as my, my savior. And I will bow the knee and I will say, God, you're really something. You are really, really something. Let us pray. The only reason we're here this morning, God, is to say that you're God, and we're not. By giving you this day, we acknowledge that every other day belongs to you. By giving our tithe, we acknowledge that all of our monies belong to you. By giving you the energy of this worship, we acknowledge that every ounce of strength in our being is a gift from you. Maybe there's some here this morning, oh God, who, are, who have captured this very day the essence of your glory, and maybe she would come and say, I want, I want Jesus to be my Lord. I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. Maybe there are others who would come and say, I need a place of permanent worship in my life. I need a family to gather around with and say, he is worthy, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. However folks would come, oh God, however you call them, may we receive them in your name. In the name of Jesus we pray.